What's up, Stitches? Isabella Rosner here, your hostess with hopefully some of the mostess. It's episode 10 of season 2 of So What? Can you believe we're already on episode 10? That is wild. I think this season will have 20 episodes instead of 25, so that means we're already halfway through the season. Where does the time go? Well, time doesn't seem to exist anymore because we're still in a global pandemic, so who even knows? Anywho, in today's episode, we're heading into the 20th century. And while we're there, we're going to get into the lace and embroidery of the Wiener Werkstätte. And we're going to have to listen to me try to pronounce and possibly fail to pronounce Wiener Werkstätte a lot in this episode. But I'm really trying, I promise. Wiener Werkstätte literally translates to Vienna Workshop, and it was, to put it simply, a cooperative of artists and artisans who worked together to create things like jewelry, ceramics, furniture, textiles, etc., etc. I will explain it in more detail once we actually get into the episode. And before I get into the episode and attempt to say a lot of German words, let me just apologize in advance for how I will pronounce and no doubt butcher those words. I've never learned German, and trying to sound out words or copy how words sound from, like, YouTube videos only gets me so far. But somewhere in my past, my family was German, hence my, I think, pretty German last name, so maybe in my time of need, my ancestors will pity me and magically help me say these German words well. Please wish me luck, because I think I'm going to need it. So before I get into the Wiener Werkstatter lace and embroidery pieces, I gotta do the thing I do every episode and say go check out the images and sources I discuss in today's episode on the So What social media pages. It's at So What Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You know it, you love it, you follow it, and all that good stuff. And if you don't follow it, you should probably go do that now, because this podcast does the difficult thing of taking visual objects and trying to turn them into something verbal. So being able to actually see what I'm talking about will help you and make this whole thing more fun. So yes, go to So What Podcast on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever else to see the objects and get a list of sources I used. Or go to sowhatpodcast.com. We have a website. It exists. It is fun and or flirty. Anyway, let's get on to the actual historic needlework. So, the Wiener Werkstatte. The Wiener Werkstatte grew out of the Vienna Secession, which was an art movement pretty closely related to Art Nouveau that was founded in 1897 by a group of Austrian artists. The Vienna Secession was part of a larger trend in Vienna around the turn of the 20th century, when the decorative arts became increasingly important. The founder you're probably most familiar with is Gustav Klimt, who was also the group's first president. The Secession was really into the international exchange of artistic ideas and invited people like the Scottish architect Charles Rennie Mackintosh to come to Vienna and exhibit. In 1903, two members of the Vienna Secession, architect Joseph Hoffman and designer Coleman Moser, broke off and formed an even more specific organization, the Wiener Werkstatte. The group was dedicated to the artistic production of a whole variety of utilitarian stuff. They made things like leather goods, books, wooden items, ceramics, postcards, jewelry, and graphic art like posters. They became a really fashionable design house with a lot of different fancy clients. 
The Werkstätte was financially backed by a dude named Fritz Werndorfer, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, who was a wealthy textile industrialist who was a big fan of the Vienna Secession. So clearly, the connection between the Wiener Werkstätte and textiles was alive and well from the very beginning. To make a long story short, over the next few years, the Werkstätte expanded and got into fashion and textiles in a big way. In 1910, the Werkstätte established a fashion department, and in 1911, it opened showrooms just for fashion and textiles in a fashionable part of Vienna called Kartnerstrasse. And after that, it opened shops in places like Zurich and New York and Berlin. So international! Textiles became hugely important to the Wiener Werkstätte. The workshop shut down in 1932, and in the last 15 years of the group's existence, when other areas of the Werkstätte's design program were declining, textiles were some of the most important parts of the group's endeavors. 80 members of the Werkstätte produced about 1,800 textile designs, mainly printed fabrics for home furnishings and clothing. According to the Victoria and Albert Museum, quote, the textiles were characterized by simplified forms and vivid colors. These were derived from Eastern European peasant art and geometric motifs in contemporary painting. They were an important influence on art deco ornamentation, end quote. Nowadays, Wiener Werkstätte printed textiles are in many museum collections and are a hot commodity on the auction and private antique dealer market. Right, so there we are with the Werkstatter printed textiles, but where does the lace and embroidery come in? That's what we're here for, after all. I mentioned that in 1910, the Wiener Werkstatter established a fashion department. Well, that department was actually accompanied by the founding of textile and artistic crafts departments. The textile department started designing embroidery for upholstery, dresses, cushions, and accessories. And then later, they also sold tool embroidery, bobbin lace, beadwork, and small tapestries. The first Wiener Werkstatte embroideries were designed by Karl Otto Czeska. I think it's Czeska, who probably was a member of the Wiener Werkstatte from the beginning and who left the group in 1914. Two of Czeska's first big embroidery designs for the Werkstatte were for the Stockley Palace in Brussels, designed by Werkstatte founder Joseph Hoffman for the financier Adolf Stockley. Is it Stockley? Is it Stocklet? I do not know. I think it's Stockley. It is spelled S-T-O-C-L-E-T. And the other design was for the Hochreith hunting lodge built for Karl Wittgenstein, a German-born Austrian steel tycoon. Cheska's design for the Stockley Palace was an embroidered frieze for a lady's bedroom that featured deer, flowers, and trees in blue, black, and white tones, but the embroidery was never actually made. It probably didn't appeal to the client for some reason, which is sad, because I personally think the design is delightful. Cheska's designs for Hochreith were actually made, though, which I love to see. For Hochreith, Cheska designed embroidery for upholstered chairs. There's a good description of his designs in the book called The Unknown Wiener Werkstatte, Embroidery and Lace 1906-1930 by Christoph Thun Hohenstein and Angela Volker, which is my main source for this episode and I refer to it a lot throughout. They write of the Hochreith embroidery, quote, Cheska's repertoire of ornamental forms influenced by Central European folk art integrated his decorative inspiration into the modern style of ornamentalizing 
organic forms in continuous lines and used forms and motifs that seem especially fitting for a country villa. The strictly symmetrical compositions formed of plant-like main lines on the chair rest and seat are interrupted by an equally fanciful yet orderly arrangement of rosettes and circles." End quote. You'll be able to see all of that for yourself if you check out the images of the Hawkwright embroideries I posted on the So What social media pages. And as the Wiener Werkstatter was designing and making embroideries for home furnishings, they were also integrating embroidery onto the clothes they designed and produced. The embroidered dresses, blouses, and clothing accessories that came out of the Wiener Werkstatter were actually designed by two architects, Joseph Hoffman and Edward Joseph Wimmerwissgrill. Hoffman was one of the founders of the group, and I've already mentioned his name several times. His earliest designs are from 1904, and he was designing embroidered clothing until at least 1910. We know this not only because a lot of photographs of his dresses survive, but also because an actual dress from approximately that year survives too. Hoffman's embroidery designs are very Art Nouveau-y, with undulating lines and geometric shapes and floral patterns and lots of stripes. The unknown Wiener Werkstatter book describes the dresses as having, quote, curvilinear vegetal motifs, end quote, which I love. A lot of the dresses have a very similar shape. They're basically long tunics with scooped necklines and sleeves that reach the elbow. Some of them have a vague kinda ampere waistline, and some don't have a waistline at all. Hoffman basically simplified the Edwardian silhouette and focused on verticality, which is further emphasized by many of the dress's vertical stripes and vertically oriented embroidery. The surviving dress I mentioned a second ago was designed for a pair of sisters, which like, one dress for two sisters? Well, Hoffman designed it for two cousins from the Wittgenstein family who wanted to attend a masked ball and enjoy the confusion their identical dresses would cause. The dress is essentially a tunic in shape, one that's ankle length and has elbow length sleeves. At first glance, it looks like the dress has a black ground with white applique, but it's actually a white dress with a huge amount of black applique and embroidery going on. The resulting design features swirling vines and leaves and very fun, kind of like teardrop-shaped bubble motifs. It's hard to describe clearly, so just check out the photos I posted on the So What social media pages. I don't know about all of you, but I would absolutely wear this dress, even though it's possibly the least flattering thing I could put on my body. Okay, so then in autumn of 1907, Edward Joseph Wimmer Visgrill comes along and starts designing embroidered clothing for the Wiener Werkstatter as well. By 1909 or 1910, he's the head of the fashion department. He designed dresses and costumes, and his embroidery motifs were used on blouses, shawls, dresses, caps, and children's clothing. Wimmer Visgrill's embroidery designs were clearly influenced by Central European embroidery. Although his surviving embroidered clothing, a bonnet and a blouse, both consist of white embroidery on black ground fabrics, it looks like a lot of his other designs were super colorful. A few postcards from the Wiener Werkstatter survive that show his clothing designs, and they are pink and blue and bright green and orange and just super colorful and vibrant and honestly just delightful. 
So thus far, we've shifted from embroidery designed for Wiener Werkstatte designed homes to clothing designed for both individual patrons and just normal shoppers, and now we're moving into embroidered clothing and home accessories that were sold at the Wiener Werkstatte storefronts. And we're moving forward in time from the first years of the 1900s to the late 1910s and into the 1920s. Cool? Cool. By approximately 1916, Wiener Werkstatte artists were designing bags, pouches, ties, cravats, shawls, pictures, and cushions, all of which were to be embroidered. The embroidery itself was done by workers at home who I'm sure were by and large women. The best sellers were handbags and pouches, and the best sellers amongst those were the ones that were embroidered, knitted, or crocheted with glass beads. The artists who designed these bags were Maria Likars Strauss, Felice Rieks Ueno, and Dagobert Pesch. Apologies to all for the way I just pronounced those names. Each of the bags and pouches were given a name, and the names are fun things like Traumland, which means dreamland, and Liebespaar und Dame on Cheslong, which translates to lovers and lady on Cheslong, and my god, the butchering of German and French. I am so sorry. I am not a language girl, and that is very clear. Anywho, the other best sellers were cushions. People in the early 20th century frickin' loved cushions. They were essential to domestic interior design at the time. The Wiener Werkstatte had been selling cushions from its early years. The cushions were made with Wiener Werkstatte silks, either completely monochrome or with a few different silks sewn together. All Wiener Werkstatte branded everything, evidently. The cushions came in a whole variety of shapes, including pyramids, rolls, flat and round beret-shaped things, fans, houses, pentagons, zigzags, hearts, plants, animals, fruits, and barrels. Literally so many shapes. In a lot of instances, the cushions were made of fabric that was embroidered with flowers and swirls and vines and all that good stuff. Love to not only have a super fun house-shaped cushion, but also a house-shaped cushion that has embroidery on it. That's the dream. So as you can see, lots of embroidery going on at the Wiener Werkstatte. What a delight. There's just a bit more embroidery I want to talk about, and then I'll get into the good, good lace. Dagobert Pesch, with his great name, was likely the guy who ushered in the creation of tulle embroidery, that's T-U-L-L-E, and bobbin lace at the Wiener Werkstatte. He joined the group in 1915 and became a co-director in 1916. And, as you just learned, he was also one of the leading cushion and bag designers for the group. This man did it all. And he and I share a birth date, so that's very fun. Anyway, tool embroidery. What am I talking about? Well, there were borders, mats, doilies, curtains, and counterpanes that involved tool embroidery. They started being produced around 1916. Curtains and counterpanes were usually entirely tool embroidery, but were sometimes made of linen decorated with insets of bobbin lace. And in case you don't know what a counterpane is, it's a bedspread. Right, yes. So, surviving pieces of tulle embroidery include a, like, length of very fine sheer tulle of indeterminate use that has four nude figures embroidered in thin white thread on it. I could not tell you what it was for, but it is very intriguing. Another surviving tulle embroidered thing is a counterpane designed by Pesch around 1920 that features a tulle ground with tulle applique and very fine embroidery. 
The piece mixes undulating vines and flowers with a geometric design made up of curving thick lines, and it even has a charming little winged cupid or angel figure in its center. Tool honestly feels like a pretty weird bedspread fabric, but hey, it is not my life. No matter what, the embroidery and applique is very fine, and the design really encapsulates that shift from Art Nouveau to more Art Deco aesthetics. The book I keep referring to in this episode, The Unknown Wiener Werkstatter, Embroidery and Lace, 1906-1930, has a good description of how this tool embroidery was actually made. Here it is, quote, the tulle embroidery consists of a transparent cotton tulle, originally made of bobbin lace, adorned with a net pattern, embroidered either by hand or machine, usually with white, rarely polychrome, cotton or silk threads. As in embroidery, the motif is transferred to the ground cloth using the inscribed blueprint. The so-called tulle lace with its white color, its transparency and delicacy, and its patterns has the appearance of lace. The objects made out of it usually correspond to the repertoire of bobbin lace items. Mats and doilies, flounces and collars in the fashion sector, and curtains and net curtains with large format patterns and motifs." End quote. That passage leads well into a discussion of bobbin lace, so let's get into it. The Wiener Werkstatter started designing bobbin lace around 1917 or 18. In the teens, the lace designs were sent from the workshop in Zurich to makers in Nezdek in the Czech Republic who produced the lace at home. Catalogs from the early 1920s also list Stribrna, now Silberbach, I think, in the Czech Republic as another site of Wiener Werkstatter lace production. The Werkstatter archive has a lot of unused lace patterns, which indicate that although a lot of bobbin lace was produced by Czech women for sale by the workshop, many pieces were not made and so the designs were sent back. The Werkstatter's lace designers were a mix of men and women, including but not limited to Dagobert Pesch, who I mentioned earlier, Fritzi Lowe Lazar, Hilda Jesser Schmid, Annie Schroeder Ehrenfest, Valley Wieselthier, and Maria Likars Strauss. The lace designs included flowers, animals, and human figures in a variety of fun costumes and poses. A real favorite of mine when it comes to Wiener Werkstatter lace is a curtain made by Annie Schroeder Ehrenfest that is made up of 84 square lace inserts. Amongst these inserts were three designs by Pesch, four by Wieselthier, and five by Schroeder Ehrenfest herself. The whole thing is a mix of vases, human figures, and animals. I don't have a huge amount of stuff to say about the Werkstatter's bobbin lace offerings, other than that they're really delightful and quite whimsical, and that I'd like to own about a billion pieces. And also lace is so crazy because you can make these intricately dressed figures and very kinetic and active animals all by pinning and twisting thread around itself. What the heck? Lace is so cool! And I think the Werkstatter laces really do a good job of capturing the mood of the times. They sit quite comfortably in that transitional period between Art Nouveau aesthetics and Art Deco ones. And speaking of Art Deco, the Wiener Werkstatter's textile offerings were displayed at the 1925 Exposition Internationale des Arts Décoratifs, an international exhibition that really got the Art Deco movement going and which literally gave the name to the movement itself. 
Arts Décoratif, from the exhibition title, which I just absolutely butchered, became Art Deco, the name we all know the artistic style by today. But by the mid-1920s, around 1926 or 7 specifically, the Wiener Werkstatt's decorative arts offerings, including its embroideries and lace, had gotten out of control. The range no longer really matched customers' tastes, and the high prices no longer made sense. By the late 1920s, the artistic enterprise was suffering, and the stock market crash of 1929 finally did the Wiener Werkstatt in. The textile department operated until 1932, when it then collapsed and the remaining goods, including a heckin' lot of embroidery and lace, were auctioned off. The Werkstatte lasted 29 years. After its liquidation, it quickly fell into oblivion and was largely forgotten about until the mid-1960s, which, like, so sad, right? I'm very happy that now, for 50 years and 100 years after the Wiener Werkstatte took the world by storm, we can celebrate it and love it and research it and share it with each other and see how it influenced design throughout the 20th and even 21st centuries. A good example of that happened a few years ago when Zara came out with clothes in printed fabrics straight up copied from Wiener Werkstatt designs, which it turns out Prada copied first. What a ride! So yeah, there's the story of Wiener Werkstatt embroidery and lace. Researching this was an adventure for me, as I know not a huge amount about 20th century needlework in continental Europe. But it's really important that I know more about the Wiener Werkstatt story and that I share it with you because the workshop was one of the longest-lived design movements of the 20th century, and it was hugely important for the development of modernism. It paired traditional manufacturing methods with an avant-garde aesthetic and total artistic freedom, which is awesome but extra sad when you consider the fact that its demise as a result of the economic crash basically shows that artistic movements can never totally free themselves from economic concerns. Oof. But let's not end there because that is sad and the Wiener Werkstatt really gave us a huge amount. When it comes to needlework, they took these centuries-old forms of stitchery and made them modern. They took traditional needlework methods and made them avant-garde. They made them cool and trendy, so cool and trendy that even a hundred years later, they're still hip. And in the midst of rapid mechanization and industrialization, they still involved hand-stitching. That hand is really clear. You can see and feel the hand of the maker, how they held their needle or their bobbins in each item. I love that, that this needlework was made with modernity in mind, but it still looked back to techniques of past centuries. Not that hand embroidery and lace wasn't happening by the 1920s. It absolutely was. There's just something about the Wiener Werkstatt embroideries and lace that make me think of long-ago examples of those art forms instead of contemporaneous ones. When I look at Karl Otto Cheska's embroidery designs, I'm reminded of 18th century cruel work panels in color and shape and design. And when I look at Dagobert Pesch's lace designs, I think of 17th century lace panels made in Britain and throughout Europe that depict human figures amidst a net of warp and weft ground fabrics. The Wiener Werkstatt needlework feels simultaneously new and old, fresh and pleasantly nostalgic. So there we are, ending with a little rumination about Wiener Werkstatt needlework. That's all I've got for you this week. 
As always, thank you so much for listening and for supporting the pod. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. Now go out and stitch some stories and join me in learning how to speak German. I'm going to get started on that right now. Bye! Thank you.